Droll and the Shoemaker's Unibrow, you glistening Richards. Welcome to the Blind By Podcast, if you are a brand new listener. Maybe you can start with this one. If you're a brand new listener, I recommend you go back to some earlier podcasts to understand the vibe. But the subject matter of this podcast, I think, makes it okay for you to join, even if you're fresh. But do go back and listen to some earlier podcasts. It's not sequential. Um, Welcome to the Blind By Podcast. I have got a hot take for you this week. It's a roasting hot take. I've been thinking about it all week. Um, I want to get into it as soon as possible. Do I have any dilly-dallying? Not a huge amount of dilly-dallying. I have been... I've been enjoying my Twitch streams, lads. Alright? You've been hearing this every week. But this is the new thing that I'm doing. I'm live streaming multiple times a week on twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. I am playing video games and instead of commenting on the video games I'm writing a live musical. Alright? I'm really enjoying it. On last Friday I was featured on I've I've become verified on Twitch, which means I have like a little tick. And a tick a tick in terms of like a verified mark, not like not like an affliction. But like I have a, a tick now on Twitch and last Friday I was featured on the main page of Twitch. So when I was doing my live stream, which was I was playing the video game Red Dead Redemption 2, which is set in America around 1890, set in the, in the, uh, the frontier of America, and I'm writing a musical, using musical instruments and recording equipment, live for an audience. And several thousand people were watching last Friday and I got a lot of new followers people who hadn't heard of the podcast or who hadn't heard of, of myself or the Rubber Bandits so that was very enjoyable it's it's do you know I miss that about live gigging it's what I used to miss about when I when I used to gig the Edinburgh Festival in Scotland 2013-2014 going out with your songs to an audience, an international audience who haven't a fucking clue who you are, who don't know where Limerick is, and performing songs to these people and winning them over, it's very enjoyable. So I had that there last Friday with a lot of Yanks and Brits. Um, it was good fun. And some Canadians, of course, and a few Australians. I'm going to be on tonight, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 9.30pm, either chatting are making music live and then almost at the weekends I got a new camera finally got a new fucking camera things are working smoothly everything's going well Um, I'm making the most of not being able to gig and I'm very happy to say that I'm very happy to say it I'm making the most of not being able to gig and I've found something really new which is creatively nourishing me so, this week's podcast, there's several themes which I'm consistently interested in, alright, throughout this podcast as you listen. Things that, things that just, that I'm very curious about and I like to investigate and interrogate and talk about. I like to speak about the history of music, 
I like to speak about Irish history, but not not kind of queer Irish history. I, I like to explore the influence. Look, Irish people, in terms of diasporas, all right, we, we've been emigrating from Ireland for, for centuries and traveling all around the world. And there's about 25 times as many Irish people living abroad as there are actually living in Ireland. And I'm always trying to find historical traces of Irishness in culture. That's something that fascinates me. Um, so this week, I want to talk about early American pop music. And when I mean early American pop music, I'm talking from 1850 up until 1920. And you might be thinking, pop music in 1850 pop music in 1901 yeah there was pop music now what what is what is pop music to me pop music to me is quite simply music which absolutely goes out of its way to be as catchy as possible something that wants to stick into your head as soon as you hear it and you walk away humming the tune that would be pop music as I understand it post-1950 but what is pop music in 1890 we'll say well for me I, I what differentiates pop music from folk music or classical music pop music for me and what emerges that you can call it pop music it's, it's when music starts to interact with capitalism and starts to interact with people who can purchase something right so it's when professional musicians start to write pieces of music with the exclusive goal of people purchasing that music that for me is the beginnings of pop music and you see the start of it in a capitalist way around 1850 1860 onwards so what what the hot take this week's podcast um if you're new a hot take for me is when I present a very plausible theory, a plausible theory that I try and provide evidence for, and the theory itself is more interesting. I'm not going to say it's not factual, but a hot take for me is is the most interesting version of history, rather than one that's rigorously factual. So it's kind of a hunch, it's a hunch that I try and prove. So this week, so there's one one thing, if we think of pop music today, right, and not just 2020, starting from, I would say, Elvis Presley onwards, which is 1955, as a given, right, as a given, the vast majority of English-speaking speak, pop music, especially if it has an R&B influence, the vast majority is sung in an African-American tonality, okay? Elvis Presley sang like an African-American person. Led Zeppelin, who were a, a British band, sang like African-American singers because they were influenced by the blues. Janis Joplin 
sang like an African-American person. The Rolling Stones sang with African-American accents. Black Sabbath from Birmingham doing metal sang with African-American accents, African-American intonations. Ariana Grande, who is a white American woman, sings with African-American intonation. She pronounces the words as she sings them in an African-American way. The vast majority of pop singers who aren't... Like, it, it's, it can be considered the exception for a pop singer to sing in their own accent. Alright, that can be considered the exception. David Bowie sang with um, his English inflection. The Kinks kind of did sometimes. But in general, most pop music is sung with an African-American inflection. And this is just a given. And the reason is, is because of the absolutely massive, undeniable, huge influence that African-American people and African-American culture has had on all 20th century music. Okay? Whatever the fuck it is. Listen, I've done enough podcasts on it. Whether it be rock and roll, house music, whatever. You go right back to the roots of that and you will find its roots in African-American music. So pop music is sung in an African-American inflection as a given and it's just normal now. In we'll say from 1910 to 1920 this was not the case with pop music okay about 90% of American pop music from 1900 to 1920 was sang with an Irish accent even if the person singing it wasn't Irish okay I'm going to back this up with musical examples I'm going to provide some background for it but before Singing in an African-American accent became the norm for pop music. You sung in in an Irish accent. Okay? And that's what this week's hot take is. I want to try and investigate this point and try and prove it. And also dig into some history of how did this come to be the case. And why did it stop? Um, You may also be asking, Blind Boy, why why do you want to talk about pop music from 1908 because I find it I find it fucking fascinating I adore music I adore just going on big big rabbit holes on the internet and finding new strange music whether I like it or not just to experience it and to enjoy it for what it is and like with old songs too we'd say a song from 1902 what I always find fascinating is A song from 1902 no longer has any copyright. So technically, you could get a song from 1902 that someone else has written in 1902 and you could could release it tomorrow as your own song and get all the profits and no one can come for you for copyright. And I used to always think... Now, most of the songs from that period, they're, they're not very good. You couldn't release them now and have a hit with it. You, you, they're just not... The style is too strange. But I always wonder, at what point does music start getting good? Like up until maybe 2029, where you can plausibly take some class jazz tunes and release them royalty-free and earn all the money on them. It's something that fascinates me. When's that going to happen? 
when is somebody going to release a 100 year old song and take all the royalties because the copyright is gone but I'm going to play you one example of a song here just to start my little theory on the Irish accent thing so this song is no Irish people were involved right it's it's an American song from 1908 it's a comedy song it would have been a huge pop song in 1908 it was written I believe by a Jewish person um, performed by a Jewish American person performed by a lad called Edward Meeker who was born in, in Oregon I think again Edward Meeker's not Irish or of Irish descent the song is called I'm a Yiddish Cowboy it's a comedy song about what what you find with a lot of early American pop music it comments on, on the melting pot the melting pot of America all these different cultures uh, living together in this country and I suppose juxtaposition so this I'm a Yiddish cowboy cowboys would have been a big cultural thing at the time but the idea of there being a Jewish cowboy would have been funny in 1908 so this is a song about a Jewish man who ends up marrying a Native American woman and he's a Jewish cowboy but nobody's Irish so why the fuck does the lad singing it sound like he's from Ennis and why is he singing in like an Ennis accent? He, he sings this like an Irishman. So what the fuck? Like that's Edward Meeker, an American, not Irish. And he's literally singing, Tough guy Levi, that's my name, and I'm a Yiddish cowboy. In an Irish accent. For no reason. It has nothing to do with the song. And when you hear it, you go, that's fucking bizarre. That's really, really strange. And it's because that's just the way things were. Why? It's ridiculous. It's like... The song's written by a Jewish man. It's about a Jewish cowboy. It's sang by an American. And you're singing in, in an Ennis an accent. This is absurd. And it's just the way things were. It's how things were with pop music at the time. And it probably makes it seem equally as absurd now. If you've got a singer from, from London, Jessie J. Jessie J will say who sings R&B who sings as if she's African American and maybe that should be absurd but it's just completely normalised um, I have never you tend not to hear R&B sung in the person's vernacular now that I think about it there's an Irish artist at the moment called Gemma Dunleavy from Dublin who just released a fantastic EP called Up the Flats and she sings some of the best Irish R&B I've heard in a while, but she sings it with her own Dublin inflection, and that's really interesting. But that song from 1908—that's utterly bizarre. And the more songs I listen to from that period, you realise, holy fuck, everyone's singing with an Irish accent. What's that about? So when I looked into the the history of it my chair has been a fucking squeaky prick my chair has been a squeaky prick and my microphone is being flaccid two seconds my apologies so 
square still have a squeaky chair and a flaccid microphone just so, ladies and gentlemen my chair's being squeaky and the microphone is do you know other podcasters would just cut this part out but no we need to leave it in we leave it in man so I need to get a new fucking chair I need to get a new fucking chair I want to get one of those um, I think I'm going to get a gaming chair a decent gaming chair for the live streaming, but not not like something that looks too much like a gaming chair. I, I don't want to look like I'm in the alt-right or an incel. I just want a good rugged chair that doesn't squeak or make noise and provides decent back support while not looking like a gaming chair, but not being an office chair. So the, the influence of, of the Irish on popular music when I delved into the history of it, is pretty significant and massive. So what do I consider to be the birth of pop music? The birth of of pop music... Pop music doesn't have to necessarily mean popular music. Folk music has been around for as long as music has been created. That's the, the music of people, right? Traditional folk music. Pop music is, I, I would say, uniquely capitalistic. It's when someone figures out, I can make money, I can make music, and I can make money by selling it. And it really starts in in the 1800s, right? Now, here's the crack. In the 1800s, there's no such thing as a record player. There's no way to actually record a piece of music, right? So, how were people selling music in the 1800s? They were selling sheet music. Literally, a composition... On a sheet of paper that you would purchase, you'd purchase this tune and it would have the lyrics on it and you would play it in your house. So in the 1800s, what you start to see in places that were being affected by the Industrial Revolution, American cities and over in England, I'm going to focus on America. With the emergence of the middle class in America from about 1820 onwards in cities like New York, People have a new room in their house called a parlour. Alright? This is a new thing. It's like... It's not a room for eating. It's not a room for sleeping. It's literally a room where... If you're a member of the emerging middle class, which means that you own a factory or you have a profession and you have time off, you have this room... For your family to have leisure. And this was a new invention. For average people in the 1800s. Known as the parlour. And they don't have radio. They don't have television. They don't have a record player. So people would congregate in the parlour. They might play parlour games. Seances became popular around this time. But also what became popular was parlour music. And with parlour music you see the emergence of pop music. People would be able to afford a piano or a a little organ that they would have, an upright piano in in their parlour and a member of the family would be able to read sheet music and they would play the music. But it wasn't virtuoso type stuff like with classical music. Very simple tunes, often multiple songs that would just have different lyrics to the same tune. And 
one of the biggest producers of, of sheet music for parlour music in, in the 1800s was the Irishman Thomas More. And Thomas More was a poet. But what Thomas More did, he would have been... You could call him a gentrifier of Irish folk music. Thomas More would have taken centuries-old Irish folk tunes that would have been played on the harp. And the folk tunes, which is Irish folk music, Irish folk melodies, would have been transferred to piano, put onto sheet music, and then Thomas More, who was a poet would put lyrics to this sheet music. Thomas More was born in Dublin. Um, he started to publish sheet music in the early 1800s. Now, to give scale as to how many people were buying sheets of Thomas More's music, he published, Jesus, about 12 books of music, I think it was, in the 1800s. He had a song called The Last Rose of Summer for which he wrote the lyrics and then, like I said, the melody would have been a gentrified Irish folk song. A melody and chord structure that existed for could be a thousand years in Irish music on the harp and Moore would have taken this melody and added his own lyrics to it and then put it on a sheet. 1.5 million Americans bought The Last Rose of Summer in the 1800s so that's huge now they're not buying it there's no record of it they can't listen to it but they're playing this in their homes the music that's being played in middle class 1800s America so you can be fairly sure that not a lot of those people are Irish people the Irish in America in the 1800s overwhelmingly um, utter poverty absolute and utter poverty the, the lowest of society but the middle class parlours of New York would have been Americans first generation, second generation Americans playing these Irish songs that Thomas More put on sheet music now the thing is More's songs some of the songs were fun. Some of them were like drinking songs. They were popular in London as well. But Moore himself was also an Irish radical. He was... He went to Trinity College and he would have been friends with, with Robert Emmett, who was a United Irishman. He, he would have been... Thomas Moore would have been very supportive of the United Irishman movement. Uh, Wolf Tone, 1798. Which was one of many failed Irish rebellions against British oppression and British colonisation. The United Irishman Rebellion, that was the, that's the birth of Irish republicanism. It was... What makes it unique is it was inspired by the French Revolution. It was a real attempt at forming a sense of Irishness and Irish identity that transcended sectarianism. And it was like... It doesn't matter if you're a Protestant. It doesn't matter if you're a Catholic. We can have a democratic Irish Republic where we are the united Irishmen. And Thomas More was 100% behind that. So a lot of his songs were 
politically very radical for Ireland's cause. One in particular, The Minstrel Boy. So Thomas More wrote a song called The Minstrel Boy, which, and when you hear, Thomas More was using the term minstrel not in the, the racist context, which is something I'm going to get onto, but Thomas More's The Minstrel Boy was, a minstrel was like a musician. A musician, I, I think like a musician who went to war or sung songs to, to, to uh, the drummer who would go alongside soldiers. I think that's what a minstrel was. But the minstrel boy was about, it was a very, it was about when Thomas More studied in Trinity College, a huge amount of his friends who he studied with in Trinity College were members of the United Irishmen movement. He was friends with Robert Emmett and a lot of his friends died in the 1798 rebellion against Britain. So the minstrel boy was in remembrance of them, but also uh, an Irish Republican song, an anti-British Irish Republican song. That's what the minstrel boy was. And this became hugely popular in America in the 1800s because people had parlours in their houses, people had pianos, and this is what they were buying. They couldn't go out and buy singles or buy records. They bought Thomas More's fucking sheet music. And the minstrel boy, he wrote the lyrics, but the melody of it, again, was from a very old Irish song called Maureen, which would, no one knows who wrote it. It's a traditional Irish song that could be a thousand years old. We don't know. Um, because we, we are a, we're an oral musical culture. That's what... Irish, that's 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 Irish culture pre-colonization. We're an an oral musical culture that's always valued and celebrated art and music and literature as part of who we are. So what you have there in America in the eighteen hundreds, pop music, as it is in the form of sheet music, is overwhelmingly dominated by. Thomas More, an Irish person. That's the music that's being played. The other huge impact that the Irish had on American pop music. Now here's the thing with anything to do with Irish America. I intended this podcast to be celebratory. To celebrate the Irish influence. But as you can tell from many podcasts I've done about the history of Irish America... As soon as you start reading about the history of the Irish in America, it starts to get really dark really quickly. It starts to get really racist. And the main musical and performance expression of this is in minstrel shows. Um, Minstrel shows are a particularly shitty part of American history where... Think of it as, so if the upper classes or middle classes were listening to sheet music in their parlours and their homes, the poorer people of America, mostly white audiences, well no, multiple ethnic mixes, were going to minstrel shows, which were a type of variety, a live variety performance. But in general, the kind of themes of what was happening on on a minstrel stage it was a mockery of black people now earlier minstrel shows 
earlier minstrel shows they, they, they didn't just mock black people they mocked Irish people as well there were Irish stock characters that conveyed you have to remember in the, in the 1800s when the Irish were arriving from the famine to America the Irish New York in particular and I've dealt with this and spoken about this in podcasts before the Irish who arrived in were considered not you just look at the cartoons from the time Irish people were being portrayed as as apes as not human violent people who couldn't mix with American society who came from a violent country who brought disease and the Irish were considered the bottom of society and the Irish lived in the poorest slums of New York uh, with and alongside African-American people who would have been slaves who were freed or had managed to run away from their slave plantations and make it to New York where they were free and they lived alongside Irish people in the 1800s and to to the power structure of early 1800s American society that power the power structure would have been the power holders were the descendants of Dutch and mostly British people who held whiteness, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who held whiteness in very high esteem. The Irish wouldn't have been viewed as white. The I- Irish and African Americans were seen in the eyes of these people as being the same. African Americans in in the 1800s and the early 1800s were referred to as smoked Irish so that that's the landscape in New York at the time and there, you're talking millions of Irish people a lot of them who can't speak English Irish people would have been deeply looked down upon and as a result of that in the earliest minstrel shows you would have had what what would what, who would have referred to themselves as Native Americans? Now, when I say Native American, I don't mean Indigenous American people who have lived in America thousands of years. I mean British settlers who came to America, who colonized America in the 1600s, who then became what they referred to as Americans, and these were nativists. They were nativist Americans second, third generation white British people who referred to themselves as American and not all of them were middle class. Some of them were poor and working class and this would have been a huge portion of the audience in the earliest minstrel shows laughing at and mocking stock Irish characters, stock African American characters who portrayed the most negative stereotypes of those people. Now, because Irish people in America lived alongside African-American people, they often were the first to put on blackface, as in to put makeup on so they would appear to be a black person and go up on stage and pretend to be black for to entertain the nativist white American audience and it was in the history of Irish America is incredibly racist I mentioned before the book how the Irish became white Irish people weren't considered white in the 1800s in America 
race is a social construct. Skin colour didn't necessarily at first allow Irish people to be considered white by na- uh, nativist Americans. And Irish people gained their whiteness in two ways. Through either literal acts of extreme violence and lynching towards the black community or by mocking them. And it's a terrible tragedy because Frederick Douglass, who was an African-American former slave, an abolitionist, um, who wanted to rid America of slavery, Frederick Douglass was friends with Daniel O'Connell, the Irishman who emancipated Catholics, and Frederick Douglass came to Ireland to do a speaking tour in the 1840s, I believe. Daniel O'Connell brought Frederick Douglass all around Ireland with the express purpose of Frederick Douglass saying to the Irish people in Ireland, I know loads of ye are emigrating now. Like, Two, two million, was it like, I think like two million Irish people went to America. Two million Irish people went to America in like 15 years in the 1840s. That, that's a, mostly to New York. And Frederick Douglass went to Ireland to say to them, I am an African-American man. When, when you get to America, there's going to be people like me. And when you go to America, you will be treated by... Yanks as you will be treated very poorly and you need to realise that when you go to America the people who look like me African Americans you need to join up with them because there's a common struggle and the same people that are oppressing you here in Ireland their grandchildren are in America oppressing African Americans and when you go to America you must join with African Americans in common understanding and solidarity because you're going to be living in the same neighbourhoods and you need to understand who your people are because your people are not the Yanks because they're going to look down upon you when you arrive and Frederick Douglass tried his best but as soon as the Irish got to America the Irish soon realised that they could achieve whiteness and privilege within American society by aggressively distancing themselves from black people and figuratively and metaphorically distancing themselves from black people by things like becoming involved in minstrelry, donning themselves up as black people and mocking them. And the heartbreaker is, is Frederick Douglass himself, when describing minstrel shows in America said it's the filthy scum of white society who have stolen from us a a complexion denied them by nature in which to make money and pander to the corrupt taste of their fellow white citizens and who Frederick Douglass is talking about there is most likely Irish people the filthy scum of white society you think of the Five Points District of New York, which is famously one of the worst slums that the world has ever seen in from about 1810 up until 1870, where Irish people lived with African-Americans in the middle of Manhattan in a kind of common understanding and intermarriage. And then the New York draft riots happen where the Irish are suddenly asked to fight in the Civil War and they don't want to do it, so they start lynching 
black people in New York because the Irish believe that the reason they're being asked to go to the Civil War is to free African-American slaves. But there's a huge tradition of Irish-Americans in the minstrel scene because it was the Irish who were living alongside the blacks and it was would have been the Irish who would have had who would have been live, in living in close enough proximity to black people to be able to do an accurate and offensive portrayal of them. And you look at the biggest Irish-American minstrels, they've all got fucking Irish names. One uh, fella in particular, his name was Thomas Rice. He Rice, of course, is an Irish name. I don't think he was born in Ireland. His parents would have been Irish Thomas Rice invented a character called Jim Crow, which was the quintessential minstrel caricature of an African African American. Thomas Rice, the Irishman, created Jim Crow. Um, there was a song called "Jump Jim Crow," written by a fella called Riley. What was his name? E. Riley, Edward Riley, I think his name was. Two Irish men or Irish American men. Jim Crow was such a racist representation of African-American people in the minstrel show. And I'm talking, Thomas Riley, he would have dressed up as, as a black person performing a stereotype of black people, a really offensive stereotype for the laughter of an audience. There was laws brought in in the South, the southern states of America, post-Civil um, War called the Jim Crow Laws, which they themselves... I believe drew inspiration from the Irish penal laws. The laws in Ireland that took the rights away from Irish Catholics to own property, to seek education, to own a weapon, to own a horse, to hold public office, to vote. These laws that Irish people, that the British put on Irish people back in Ireland to escape, very similar structures were brought in against African American people when slavery was abolished in in the southern states of America, the southerners didn't really want to give African-American people freedom. So what they did is they introduced the Jim Crow laws, which which lasted until the 1960s in America, which were incredibly racist laws. It's where segregation comes from. It limited the civil liberties and freedoms and rights of African-American people to be equal to white people. And these were called the Jim Crow laws. They, they were named after a racist minstrel act performed by an Irish-American man called Thomas Rice. So that's how bad the Irish participation in minstrel shows was. And again, the earliest fucking minstrel shows... They, they were taking the piss out of Irish people too. They had Irish characters who looked like apes, who were stupid, thick paddies looking for, starving from potatoes, from the lack of potatoes. And then the Irish get involved in this as a way to seek the approval of who referred to themselves as the nativist Americans the second, third generation British people in America, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, wasps. These people were laughing at Irish people. These people were creating racist caricatures of Irish people. And then the Irish got involved in that system to gain the approval, to gain their whiteness, to gain their privilege. 
and to be seen as equal to second, third generation British people. Black people also participated in minstrel shows, but they would... Black people would put on blacker makeup in minstrel shows and perform, again, a caricatured version of blackness, even though they themselves were African-American. But the thing is with minstrel shows and the music that was being performed and the dances. So before minstrel shows were even a thing, the, the type of dancing that would have happened on stage, it has its roots to before minstrel shows and it's an amalgamation of both Irish and African dance. One example, this occurred in the Five Points neighbourhood of New York in the 1840s, I believe. There was this huge dance competition between an Irish-American man and an African-American man. The Irishman's name was John Diamond and the African-American man's name was Master Juba. His real name was William Henry Lane, they think. And they both would have been considered the best dancers in the Five Points. And they were to dance, a competitive dance. Now the interesting thing with the dance that they would have, were doing, which at the time probably would have been called a jig. Around 1840 the dance would have been called a jig. And you can tr- this type of dance is, you can trace it to both. It's an amalgamation of Irish and African dancing, which... Now, I'm getting this information from the official American Library of Congress website, so we have to assume that this is historically rigorous if it's here. So, this type of dancing that Jim Diamond and Master Juba would have been competing with each other in the type of dancing. Being traced to the 1600s in the Caribbean uh, with a, a common dance between Irish indentured servant and African slave... The Irish were never slaves. I'll say it again. Anyone who says it is bullshit. And there were a lot of Irish people uh, taken from Ireland and forced to work on plantations in the Caribbean. They could achieve their freedom, but they worked alongside African slaves who was were chattel slaves and could never achieve their freedom. But this dancing can trace its roots to the Caribbean in the 1600s, where you had... Irish jig dancing and then a form of African dancing which I don't the, the, the name that's that I found for it is Juba which is comes from the African uh, Juba or Jube which is D-G-O-U-B-A but in America it became Juba and both this the John Diamond's dance and Master Juba's dance they're both competing in this similar artistic conversation which is about 200 years old and is a mix of both African and Irish dance and this went on to become tap dancing. This was the type of dancing that was to be seen on minstrel shows and the type of music would have been again a mixture of Irish fiddle music, folk fiddle music accompanied by African African drum patterns do you know what I mean so you've got this lovely amalgamation amongst the horrors of what the fucking Irish Americans were doing and Master Juba 
the, the great irony with Master Juba is Jim Diamond was a minstrel. Jim Diamond performed in minstrel shows in blackface. Master Juba is the first ever African-American person to perform in front of a white audience as a minstrel. So Master Juba himself became a minstrel. He didn't wear blackface. He was a black person performing stereotypes of black people to white audiences. He performed for the Queen of England in 1848, uh, Victoria, I assume, as a minstrel. And Master Juba is considered to be the father of tap dancing as tap dancing went on to progress uh, in its importance in jazz music and became more percussive. Master Juba is considered to be the one who kept that tradition and kept it rooted more in African dance rather than the Irish style of dance. And the reason I'm mentioning this is this this podcast is about, like I said, it's about early 20th century American pop music and 1800s American pop music and the huge role of the Irish within it. But I'm not going to whitewash anything. I don't want to do a podcast celebrating Irish art in America without acknowledging the the racism also involved in it. I'm not going to do that. Um, one example of why that's fucking harmful, the Five Points District, if you've seen the film Gangs of New York, that's about the Five Points. That's what it is. It's that neighbourhood in New York. But you've probably heard my podcast that I did with Spike Lee. Gangs of New York did not portray the brutality that the Irish performed against African Americans. It didn't portray it at all. It didn't portray the New York draft riots. Spike Lee told me that Scorsese recorded that footage, but it didn't go into the final scene. Probably because the Irish Americans are a very powerful lobby in America and you don't like pissing them off by reminding them of their racist history because Irish Americans, they're the ones who like to believe that the Irish were slaves, you know? And it's a fucking shame that Gangs New York didn't portray that and that the, the instead it was whitewashed. It's a fucking shame because you're denying the many decent Irish Americans the opportunity to learn about and understand the darkness of their history in America. Before we move on to part two, I'm probably fucking 50 minutes in now before I go near any part two, am I? Let's check. Good lord, 46 minutes. So, it's time for the Ocarina Pause. Ocarina Pause is where a digital advert is going to be inserted in this podcast. If you're new to the podcast, I play an instrument called an Ocarina so that you don't get surprised by a surprise advert. Um, I don't know what advert gets played in the Ocarina Pause. It depends on your algorithm and your search history. Here we go. Shit, Ocarina. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Not too bad. Nice and low. So this podcast is supported by you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. This is now my sole source of income as a result of a global pandemic. I can't do gigs, don't know when I can do gigs, but the Patreon is paying my way. This, it does, it does two things, lads. Most importantly, the Patreon allows me to have full editorial control over the podcast I'm beholden to no advertiser. I speak about what I want. I get to do podcasts on what I'm passionate about. And if I can do a podcast on what I actually care about and what I actually am interested in, then that's a good, enjoyable podcast, right? As soon as some advertiser starts telling me what to do podcasts about, then that's difficult for me to make an entertaining podcast. The Patreon support means that that's not going to happen. Fully independent, full editorial control, um, which is an utter pleasure, right? Secondly, it's this is my full-time job. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of research to put these podcasts together. I love fucking doing it. But if you're listening to it, just please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. If you're consuming it, consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. If you can afford to do that. If you can't afford it, then chill out, it's fine. Someone else is paying for you to listen. And I'm still earning a living. It's a really... It's a it's a model based on kindness and soundness, alright? And it works perfectly. If you can't afford the Patreon, please do. The reason I'm always plugging it, people come and people go. So I gotta keep it going every week, reminding you the Patreon is what pays for this podcast and what keeps it going. Um... Once a month I pick one patron at random and I will send you in the post a hand-drawn illustration that is a one-of-a-kind and I'll sign it as well, okay? As a thank you to my patrons. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Um, also, like the podcast, subscribe to it, whatever app you're using. Leave a little review for this podcast and interact with it that way. Give it a few stars. Give it a follow. That really helps me too. The podcast environment at the moment is becoming oversaturated by big media companies with a lot of money behind them. And they are taking up space and it's pushing out small independent podcasts like me. So what you can do to help me is interact with the podcast by liking, reviewing, things like that. Telling your friends about it then I don't have to worry about a fucking a huge broadcaster who's got massive sponsors who I can't compete with. Because podcasting wasn't like that three, four years ago when I started. I didn't have that huge competition. Um, it was just simply put out a good podcast and you're on a level playing field. That's changing. Changing big time because of big money. Um, follow me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. That's my latest venture, alright? Three, four times a week, 
you can see me live half nine every night Irish time Wednesday, Thursday, Friday um, yes weekends but I'm, I'm not religious about the weekends you can come and you can chat with me live you can get into the comments there's only like a thousand people watching at a time it's still starting off it's it's growing so you can get online you can chat to me live and I'll talk to you and it's it's amazing crack so twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast start yourself a twitch account and follow me thank you very much part two so the central thesis and hot take of this podcast was my my hot take is in the early 20th century pop music was sang in an Irish accent. American pop music was sang in an Irish accent, regardless of whether the singer was Irish or not. One big reason for this, I believe, is because of a singer called John McCormack. John McCormack came from Athlone. Um, He was born in 1884. He started to become really popular around 1902. John McCormack was one of the biggest stars in the world, right? By about 1905, he would have started off... He was an operatic singer, an operatic tenor singer, okay? And he would have been... I'm talking Elvis Presley, Michael Jackson, biggest musician in the world from Athlone about, in about 1905, 1906. John McCormack, to give you an idea, James Joyce the Irish writer, who is considered the greatest modernist writer in the English language, like James Joyce was obsessed with John McCormack. All James, James Joyce wanted to write songs for John McCormack. James Joyce, there's only one known example of a song that James Joyce wrote. It's called Bid Adieu to Girlish Days, which is the 1906 equivalent of that song, Girl, you'll be a woman soon. By who wrote that? Neil Diamond, I think. Neil Diamond, James Joyce wrote that. Wrote a very similar song in 1906. Bid adieu to girlish ways, and he wrote it because he wanted John McCormack to sing it. And John John McCormack was James Joyce's friend, and James Joyce always said that he would write lyrically. James Joyce would write with a song in his heart. Finnegan's Wake, in particular, and. John McCormack was fucking huge. So I spoke before the break about the influence of the Irishman Thomas Moore on sheet music in the 1800s and how Thomas Moore like basically took traditional Irish music, traditional Irish melodies and chords and gentrified it and added his own words to it and made this palatable to middle class parlours where people would buy sheet music and play pianos. Well, by 1905, sheet music was still a thing, but the parlours now, instead of a piano, people were able to afford record players. And John McCormack was one of the first stars of recorded music where people would buy a John McCormack record and listen to his voice. And one of John McCormack's biggest songs, his earliest songs that was huge, would have been a Thomas More song, The Minstrel Boy. Um, now, th- like I said, Thomas More's minstrel is not the racist minstrel, it's just a coincidence. Thomas More's minstrel was 
a singer or a drummer who went into battle. But this Thomas More song was one of John McCormack's first recorded songs and it was a huge, huge hit in 1906. And John McCormack sang in an operatic tenor voice, but his inflections and way of singing was unapologetically Irish. It would have been bougie Irish. It would have been how priests would have spoken. It wasn't Anglo-Irish with a British inflection, but he would have sang in in an Irish accent that was bogger, like a a, a Athlone bogger accent, but not picking spuds out of the ground accent, aspirational bogger, someone who might become a priest bogger. That's how John McCormack sounded when he sang, and I think John McCormack and his recorded music is he was the one who set the tone for if you want to release a fucking pop song even if you're Jewish you gotta sound like a fucking bogger from Athlone who wants to be a priest so I'll play you a little bit of John McCormack do you know I won't play you minstrel boy I'll play you when Irish eyes are smiling because this really shows that bogger Irish inflection that I'm talking about So, in in 1906, when that would have been released, like, you're talking that that's Beyonce. That's fucking huge. Biggest, I say the world, but like, in 1906, the songs that are going to be getting to number one in America are not the songs that are going to be getting to number one in the UK. It would have been too different. But... In America, in the city, Chicago, New York, 1906, that's the biggest song. Fucking huge, absolute superstar. And with all due respect, like, for a song that's over 100 years old, that's banging. Like, you know, you can tell that's a star. His voice is incredible. He sounds like a priest. Um, He sounds like a, like a, a bougie Irish priest where it's bogger inflection with that attempt to be kind of posh but not English and you hear that in his voice but that set the standard for what pop songs had to sound like at the turn of the last century another <clears throat> so another huge contributing factor to Irishness in early American pop songs is a place called Tin Pan Alley right now as I'm saying, pop music for me, it's when music starts to intersect with capitalism. Songwriters basically going, I can make a song and if the song is really fucking popular, this will make me money. 
and this starts to happen with Tin Pan Alley, which started around 1885. It was an area around 26th Street in Manhattan where copyright started becoming a thing. Copyright and music publishing started becoming a thing. Intellectual property. If you write a song, you can own that song if you wrote it, and if it makes money, you're entitled to royalties. So the beginning of that is Tin Pan Alley. And loads of songwriters were starting up these publishing houses in this one area and in their little offices they would have pianos and the place was called Tin Pan Alley because imagine 40 different offices and in each office is a piano and someone's trying to write a pop song so it all that cacophony together wasn't very pleasant so if you went near 26th Street in Manhattan it sounded like people banging tin pans and pots with all the different pianos going off. the A huge amount of songwriters in Tin Pan Alley were either Irish or Jewish. Okay? Tin Pan Alley, they were writing sheet music. So writing music for people to buy as sheets to take home and play on their pianos or play in the pub if there was a, pu- a piano in the pub or in the saloon. And also for early radio... And people who had fucking record players. They were making songs to be uh, pressed to record for people to buy. And you started to see the first pop songs. They were... Some people call it novelty music. There would have been novelty music as in... Someone would... Novelty for me... I don't like the fucking phrase novelty music because it's something that's used to refer to... Oh, there's a fucking house alarm now. What the fuck am I going to do again? For the love of fucking God. Bollocks. Fucking cunts. Right, the house alarm has gone off now, whoever the fuck that was. It was either a house or a car. It's half three in the morning as I record this. Um. So, what was I talking about? Novelty music. So, I, I don't like the phrase novelty music. I don't like it when, when the rubber bandits music is referred to as novelty music. Um, novelty music tends to be used quite lazily just because a song contains comedy or the lyrics are intended to be funny does not mean that a song is novelty music Um, novelty music is when the music itself doesn't matter because the theme of the song let's just take fucking house alarm if I release a song tomorrow crazy frog it's about a ringtone if you release the house alarm song and the music isn't very good and it has a house alarm in it and all it is is about a house alarm that's novel. That's a novelty song because all people care about is it's like ha 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 yeah I, I, I know what house alarms are ha 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 that's a novelty song Um, a song that is well constructed pop song that just happens to be funny is not novelty that's a completely different thing but in Tin Pan Alley they they released comedy songs but they also released novelty songs which is there's nothing happening musically they're using pre-existing music a traditional melody and then making lyrics that are about something very current if you listen to a lot of novelty songs from around the time around 1910-1920 a lot of it was about emerging technology you'd have a song about fucking you'd have a song about Telephones. Uh, there was loads of songs about trams. There would have been songs about the Wright brothers flying planes. 
songs about current events and people are buying them because it's a novelty that this song is about something that's in the news or something you can relate to. Um, I'll show you a good example of what was considered a novelty song at the time. No, this is unfair. The person who wrote this song attempted, intended this to be a novelty song, right? They intended this to be a novelty song. This is a Tin Pan Alley song written by a Jewish man, performed by a Jewish man from Tin Pan Alley. No Irish people involved. And the writer was on a tram and the writer would have been in his 30s or 40s and he was aware that, right, who's buying these records? Who's listening to this stuff? Young people. And he was on a tram and he he saw some young people, 16, 17, talking and there was a girl on the train, on the tram, a young Irish girl called Katie Casey and she was talking about baseball. And your man, the writer, had never heard of baseball. It was obviously so young and new in America. And this girl on the tram in 1906, I think it was, 1907, was saying to her friend, who was a fella, take me out to the ball game. Take me out to the ball game. And the songwriter, a Jewish man who worked in Tin Pan Alley, was thinking, ah, take me out to the ball game. I guess that's what the kids are talking about now. Baseball. I don't know what the fuck it is, but I'm going to I'm gonna take some of these lyrics and I'm going to write this into a novelty song. But I don't think this is a novelty song because it's actually a classic that's still survived today called Take Me Out to the Ball Game and it's quite catchy. So he intended to write a novelty song, but he ended up writing a really catchy good pop song that just happened to have lyrics that are about baseball. But here's the key thing written by a Jewish person performed by a Jewish man called Harvey Windermeyer no one Irish and yet why is he singing like a fucking bogger he's singing like a bogger from from Ennis again get a listen take me out to the ball game 1906 So there you have it again like that's 1908 by the way not 1906 but Harvey Hindermeyer or Windermeyer it's written by a Jewish fella too two Jewish uh, people working in Tin Pan Alley writing a novelty song but yet he delivers it in the John McCormack style listen to the pronunciation of uh, buy me some peanuts and cracker jacks cracker jacks sounds like a priest sounds like a fucking priest from Cork or Ennis singing with an Irish inflection cracker jacks that's not how Jewish American men were speaking in New York at the time trying to sound Irish trying to sound like John McCormack to appeal to most likely who the song is about a girl called Katie Casey you have to remember 1906 the vast majority of people on the streets in New York are going to be Irish who want to hear songs about what Irish people are interested in and Irish American culture 
And in Tin Pan Alley, it was hugely overrepresented with Irish and Jewish songwriters. Um, the Jewish people, I think, were looking more after the musical side of it, playing the piano side, and then the Irish were the lyrics and the singing. You even had Irish lads pretending that their second names were Jewish and Jewish lads pretending that their second names were Irish. Like, there there was a fella called a Tin Pan Alley songwriter, George M. Cohen. Now, you'd think Cohen is a Jewish name, like Leonard Cohen, but his name, he spelt it C-O-H-A-N, but his actual name was Keown, Kyo, K-E-O-H-A-N-E, Keown, but he made it Cohen, so people would think that he was Jewish. Another massive theme of Tin Pan Alley songs, we'd say before 1920, would have been longing for Ireland, longing for Ireland. Um, songs to appeal to the Irish diaspora who had a rose-tinted version of what they'd left behind or what their parents had left behind. And you had all these songs about Killarney and Cork and all this shit. And this was dominating the pop charts in New York. Here's an excerpt of a song from 1910 written by Nora Bays. Nora Bays was a New York Jewish woman. She has never been to Cork. Um, She's not Irish. She has no reason to be longing for Cork. She certainly doesn't speak in an Irish accent because she's a Jewish woman from New York. But here's her song, Has Anybody Seen Kelly, from 1910. Michael Kelly and his sweetheart from the county car Would have been to on a holiday They landed in New York They strolled around to see the sight A lad is sad to say Poor Kelly lost his little girl Up on the great white way So there you have it. That's Nora Bays, whose birth name is Rachel Goldberg, a Jewish-American woman, singing like every single one of my aunts at once. Because that was pop music then. You sung like a paddy about Irish things, regardless of whether or not you were Irish. That was pop music in 1910. Uh, Another pair of Tin Pan Alley songwriters. They would have been like a songwriting production team. I'm trying to think of current songwriting production teams that are big and it's nothing. The closest I can think of is Pharrell Williams. He's more 10 years ago, but like Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, Nerd, N-E-R-D. Like Jerome and Schwartz. Um, But William Jerome, his name was William Flannery, but he called himself William Jerome, so people would think that he was um, Jewish. And William Jerome, Irish-American, New York, born in 1865, probably came from an Irish-American slum. He himself started off as a blackface minstrel performer, then started writing with Gene Schwartz, a Jewish person, and they became huge pop songwriters. And this next song, this is pure and utter novelty song, and I'm, I'm only playing, playing it for you because it's so fucking ridiculous. This is one of the most stupid, ridiculous songs I've ever heard in my life. Um, the name of the song is it, it, If It Wasn't For The Irish And The Jews. And what it's about is 
the song is like celebrating again it's a novelty because they're going who's our audience young Irish and young Jews but they're going you'd have no actors you'd have no entertainers you'd have none of this if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews and this is just a bizarre ridiculous song now this is a little bit later this is like 1913 and you start to see the disappearance of the Irish inflection and more of an American weird New York inflection which I believe is because of the success of a singer called Eddie Cantor who became very big at the time and this this sounds like him he he was singing in a New York accent Eddie Cantor again was another minstrel performer what would this great Yankee nation really, really ever do? If it wasn't for a Levy, a Monaghan or Donahue, where would we get our policemen? Why, Uncle Sam would have the blues. Without the pants and his doors, you'd have no big department stores if it wasn't for the Irish and the Jews. So there you go, that's pop music 100 years ago. Absolutely bizarre. Um, but fascinating, fucking fascinating. And I fell down a deep, deep YouTube hole just listening to this shit and listening to the ridiculous shit that was considered pop music back then. But in doing so, noticing why the fuck are so many of them speaking like Irish people, I need to find out this reason. And that's what this podcast was about. And I think I, I think for my hot take, I think I've backed it up. I think I've backed it up with good evidence. I've never heard anyone... I've never heard that argument made. I've never heard it spoken about. Um, about people singing with Irish accents just as a given. In the way that right now, singing with an African-American inflection is a given and it's normal and no one blinks an eyelid. Where do I think it's going to go? Um, the biggest bands in the world today are South Korean. BTS are the biggest boy band in the world. A band like Red Velvet, South Korean band, the girl band. Not only are they huge, but the pop music is really fucking good. Red Velvet in particular. They're huge. They're fucking huge. They're selling more albums than artists in the West. And I've been watching... Asian pop music for since about 2010 I went to MTV in just after Horse Outside we were brought over to America to film some stuff with MTV and when I was working on MTV the vast majority of the people that I was working with were Asian American and they were telling me you have to watch Korea Korea is where it's going to be and they were saying this in 2010 and they got me onto a band called 21 they were called and I was listening to 21 and I'm like, yeah, this is fucking banging. And then, of course, Gagnam Style comes out in 2015. I think the biggest song on YouTube ever. And one of the reasons... Like, Asian markets... So I noticed, almost around 2008, a lot of big Western producers were doing quite a lot of work in places like Korea. 
And one explanation I heard was... Now, if if I'm wrong on this, this is something I heard because I don't like making generalizations about entire populations. But one thing I heard was that Asian cultures weren't as impacted by illegal downloading as Western cultures because of cultural attitudes towards stealing. That circa 2000, when we were all using LimeWire or whatever to illegally, or BitTorrent, to illegally download tunes because it's like fucking free albums give it here no one's going to catch me everyone was downloading music and we effectively destroyed the ability for musicians to earn music myself included I'm downloading all around me and now I can't fucking earn money from music Asian cultures didn't experience illegal downloading to the extremity that we did because the culture of shame around stealing that the culture of shame around stealing was much greater than us, so they just didn't do it as much. So a lot of producers migrated there to go, well, this is where you can make money from music now. And then from that, you end up with, in 2020, the biggest bands in the world are South Korean. BTS are fucking huge. BTS are bigger than any boy band in the world. Um, So I wonder... Is that going to be the next thing? Like I do think the next century. The US is going to stop being the global power. Coronavirus is the first sign. I mean we're, we're really seeing it. Like uh, the way that Korea, Vietnam, China are controlling coronavirus. Acting responsibly as world leaders. And then in, you know, you've got Britain and America and it's just this real embarrassing shambles. And Europe is kind of looking over to Asia going, well, they seem to have their shit together over there. And I I think coupled with, I just wonder in 10 years time, will you have Western artists either singing with Korean lyrics or singing with Korean inflections and that this will be the next thing and I don't is it is it that is it that mad to suggest, suggest that if at one point a hundred years ago everyone was singing like a priest from Cork do you know what I mean so that was this week's hot take I hope you enjoyed it I love doing music podcasts I adore it it's four in the morning here and I'm finished the podcast I don't give a fuck I've been up all morning researching, researching yesterday. I'm up till four in the morning to deliver the best fucking podcast I can deliver because I love doing it. I don't give a shit if I'm going to bed at four or five in the morning to get this done because I fucking love doing it. I fucking love doing it. I hope you enjoyed it too. I see you next week. Yart. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 